A couple weeks ago, we had a press release on some results from Gemini that gained a lot of traction. The team led by Michael Wong from the University of California, Berkeley, used the Gemini North Telescope in conjunction with the Hubble Space Telescope and the Juno probe to observe Jupiter in multiple wavelengths, ranging from microwave to infrared and ultraviolet. Today, I'm interviewing Mike Wong about his research and how Gemini can be used to observe time-sensitive targets. Great to have you on today. If you'd like to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and your research. Okay, yeah, I'm Mike Wong and I work at UC Berkeley as a planetary scientist. I study the atmospheres of the giant planets and the press release was focused on Jupiter. Uh, we've been observing Jupiter since 2016, um, trying to get data every time Juno passes by the atmosphere. And Juno uh, is on a highly eccentric orbit, so it passes every 53 days, it skims over the cloud tops. And we call that phase of the orbit the perigee. So in orbits, the apoapsis is the farthest point in the orbit, and the periapsis is the closest point. So for Jupiter, that closest point is perigee. So every 53 days, there's a perigee, and we try to get uh, Gemini and Hubble observations around the same time. You talked about um, using these instruments to observe Jupiter's atmosphere. Uh, Jupiter uh, is, of course, a gas giant, the largest planet in our solar system. So what do we know about where the atmosphere of a gas giant ends and the interior begins? Um, that's actually a poorly defined region. And usually, it depends mainly on the interests of the scientist who's uh, making that <laughs> distinction. Uh, the Juno mission kind of has three main areas, the um, magnetosphere, the atmosphere, and the interior. And one of the things we've been finding in the Juno mission is that uh, these apparently separate regions are a lot more connected than we thought. At the time that uh, we started this observing campaign, um, I was part of this uh, outside astronomy community that's supporting Juno's mission, but I've since then joined the, the science team of Juno. We're finding that to be one of our, our greatest surprises that the deepest layers of the atmosphere are overlapping a lot with the science that we're doing with the interior of the planet. Well, Jupiter is obviously a very interesting target. Um, there's a lot that can be learned there. Maybe you could tell us a little bit of the story behind choosing this particular research that led to the paper and the press release. So what's, what's the story behind that research? Why did you choose Jupiter? And why did you choose multiple wavelengths? Well, I've been studying Jupiter my whole career. It started when I was a grad student. I worked on the Galileo probe data. Um, so I've just maintained an interest in that planet. And we, we chose Hubble and Gemini because with their high resolution imaging capabilities, um, we can get context for the Juno observation. So during each perigee, Juno is approaching as close as 5,000 kilometers to the cloud tops. It's sensing an area of the planet that's relatively narrow as it goes from north to south. So with our imaging observations, we can see what's going on around the spacecraft track and um, put those observations into context by determining the types of meteorology or individual features that uh, may coincide with 
variation in the signals detected by Juno. Um, the project kind of started with the uh, Hubble data because I knew that with Hubble's imaging data, we could get observations 10 hours apart, look at shifts in the clouds between those uh, separate images, and then measure the velocities of the winds blowing around in the atmosphere. So uh, Gemini data is uh, complementary to this because with the Hubble data, we're measuring horizontal motions, but uh, the Gemini data actually give us some information about vertical motions. With Gemini's five micron uh, imaging, what really uh, stands out are holes in the clouds, and that's where uh, thermal radiation is coming from deeper in the atmosphere. So what's causing these holes in the clouds is downdrafts that kind of dry out any cloud particles that may be there. So we can use the Gemini data to see where there's downdrafts and uh, gives us more information about particular areas such as lightning source regions. Speaking of holes in the clouds, in fact, there, I remember in our press release, there was, and in the paper, there was some discussion about solving a, a small question that astronomers have had about features in the Great Red Spot, whether they were changes in cloud composition or holes in the clouds. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? There's always kind of been this question on Jupiter of why are some of the clouds red? Why is the Great Red Spot red? And that question is, I mean, we have some ideas that are consistent with observations, but we haven't proven what is actually causing the coloration. So we use this technical term chromophores, meaning colored particles. So there's chromophores uh, causing red coloration, but we don't actually know what these chromophores are. So one of the additional questions is, is there just one type of particle that causes a red coloration or are there multiple different chromophores in the atmosphere of Jupiter? These dark spots or, and dark lanes kind of stretched out little dark features have been seen in the Great Red Spot for some time. And uh, recently a paper came out by Augustin Sanchez La Vega et al. And they used Juno CAM data to look at the Great Red Spot. So they saw these dark features and they raised the question, are these actual gaps in the clouds and they're dark because there's no sunlight scattering back from clouds? Or could they be an additional type of cloud that is color different from its surroundings. So unlike the surrounding red clouds, perhaps that particular feature was a dark brown cloud or something. So by correlating the Hubble images with the Gemini images, we were able to show that those uh, dark regions really are just gaps in the clouds. So it's a little bit surprising because you would think of the great red spot as this really, really cloudy region, but even there, we do see some gaps. Thank you. So the press release for, for your paper uh, ended up gaining quite a lot of traction and uh, no small part of that was thanks to the really striking images you were able to, uh, to create using NERI. For our listeners, uh, NERI is Gemini North's near-infrared imager. It's the primary instrument that we use to capture images uh, from about one to five micrometers with the infrared light between one to five micrometer wavelength. But so Gemini North's adaptive optics system is currently only available out to about 2.5 micrometers. 
and uh, the images that you took for your observations were taken at uh, 4.7, is that correct? Yeah. Which means that you were able to get these very sharp images. And of course, this being a podcast, I can't really show that to our audience right now, but there will be a link in the description of this podcast to the uh, Gemini press release for our listeners to take a look at. So for your images, you were able to get some very sharp images without the benefit of the adaptive optics. Can you tell us a little bit about how you managed to do that? Yeah, so we used a lucky imaging technique and um, adaptive optics does actually work at this wavelength, but just not at Gemini. So we've observed before with Keck Observatory and their adaptive optics system um, can function at five microns. But the issue there is the imager only has a 10 arc second field of view, which is very small compared to Jupiter's diameter. It could be 40 to 50 arc seconds across. So um, getting a, a full disk image at Keck is, um, has never been done before. It's so difficult. So with Gemini, we have a larger format detector available, and we're able to get these full disk images but without adaptive optics, because in the Gemini system, a dichroic splits the light coming into the telescope. Part of it goes to the AO system, and part of it goes to the science instrument. And that dichroic won't pass uh, five micron light to the science instrument. So uh, the lucky imaging technique we used is, for our specific program, we settled on 38 images. All, each one is 0.3 seconds, so we took a a series of 38 images. And the turbulence in the Earth's atmosphere is variable. So for some of these 0.3 second images, you'll get sharper data than other ones. And we take about 10% of those, the sharpest ones, and stack those together and get better signal to noise than if it was just a single image. Yeah, so that technique, if the atmospheric conditions are good, you can actually get data at the diffraction limit of the telescope. So we validated that by checking the images. But both adaptive optics and lucky imaging are still sensitive to the atmospheric conditions. So um, the images that we use for the press release were really some of our most exquisite data taken with a really clear and relatively still atmosphere. So we got really our, our sharpest images and that was May 2019. So at some other, on some other nights that we observed, um, it wasn't as sharp, but we still get much better than if we were just take a longer image and let it be smeared out by the atmosphere. Oh yeah, the, the, the TAC. Um, so, so lucky imaging really does allow us to make use of this strength of Gemini's, the really big um, aperture, the eight meter aperture at Gemini um, can give us a diffraction limit of about 0.15 at this wavelength, 0.15 arc seconds. But on the other hand, most astronomers are, are uh, concentrated on how this large aperture can give you a lot of photons and collect a lot of light um, so you can observe really faint sources. Jupiter is such a bright source 0.3 seconds for each exposure is about the longest that we could expose before it would saturate. So it's it's very bright source, but we were interested in this sharp imaging, which is 
I think, as valuable as the light gathering power of a large telescope. So we had to convince the TAC that lucky imaging wasn't a waste. There was some resistance because, oh yeah, the TAC means the time allocation committee for the telescope. Um, there was some resistance at first because we're throwing away 90% of our, our data and only stacking up the sharpest 10%. But that's what we have to do to really get this diffraction limited imaging with really high resolution. And uh, we did trim the program down a little bit because we, um, so to mosaic across Jupiter, we needed either four pointings when Jupiter is farther away and smaller or up to nine pointings to cover the whole disk when it's closer. And initially we had done that whole sequence and then repeated it again. And that allows us to um, compensate for things like uh, cloudiness that varies over longer time scales, over minutes to hours. So we did get better data, but it took longer. So in the end, we streamlined our program, made it less wasteful, but we're subject to a little bit more um, atmospheric variability that way. So you've actually just touched on this a, a little bit, but you know, with, with Gemini, you're taking 38 different images of your target at, at just one pointing, and then you have to do between, you know, four and nine different pointings for a full observation run. Uh, and then you also, of course, have to take observations with Hubble as well. And both of those are being constrained by Juno's 53-day cadence with the close approaches to, to Jupiter. So, how did you overcome that that challenge of so much, so many constraints on your observing time and having to use multiple different instruments, uh, essentially concurrently? How did you how did you get around that challenge? Well, there were a lot of different challenges with with uh, each facility. So, like with Hubble, um, Hubble's in a ninety six minute orbit around the Earth. So, um, for half of that orbit. Jupiter is blocked by the Earth. So we have to look for timings where, you know, where you can access the target. And some of those timings are ruined when Hubble goes into the South Atlantic anomaly, which is a region of Earth's magnetic field where there's a higher flux of charged particles and um, those interfere with the observations and the pointing control of Hubble. So sometimes we had to compromise and observe 10 hours before or after these perigeal events. 10 hours is one Jupiter rotation. So that lets us look at the right longitudes on Jupiter, even if the timing may be off by a little bit. Um, and then with Gemini, we also have problems sometimes with the Earth getting away, uh, getting in the way of the target, and that's called Jupiter being below the horizon. Um, sometimes when it's above the horizon, you have the pesky sun in the way or weather. So um, yeah, so there were a lot of timing constraints that we had to deal with. Um, also, NERI, um, as you mentioned, it's a workhorse imager at Gemini in the near infrared, but um, there, it shares a port with some other instruments, so occasionally that instrument wouldn't be available. And the other thing is, these observations, they can be done in a period of time that's 30 to 60 minutes long. That's all the time we need to cover the whole disk of Jupiter. But then, under classical telescope scheduling, um, you just have a certain block of time and the telescope's yours to do, do what you want. But with Gemini's Q scheduling, 
This really helps us to do our short observations that are time constrained because we can just take an hour to get our data and then the Gemini Q will determine what other observations can fit in around that. So it, it's a valuable capability for doing these relatively brief observations um, on cadences. It's probably similar to the multi-messenger astronomy that um, you often discuss on this podcast. Uh, so typically multi-messenger astronomy, I thought, is related to um, unexpected transients like supernovas or uh, gravitational wave events. So is it relatively unusual to think of solar system observations as falling under multi-messenger astronomy? So yeah, traditionally multi-messenger astronomy does refer to the unexpected transients like supernovas and gravitational wave events. But a project like this with research like like yours, you end up having a lot of very similar time and observational constraints. You're having the constraints for different reasons, but the effect is that you still have to work on a very tight time schedule. Like you said, it's every 53 days you want to get your observations of Jupiter. And those observations, of course, have to be done while Jupiter is visible to the telescope and while the face of Jupiter that includes the correct regions that Juno did his Passover is also visible. So considering all the timing constraints that you have to work within, even though on a, on a literal technical definition, it might not be traditionally uh, multi-messenger astronomy, you end up working with a lot of the same constraints that makes the, the problems that you have to solve essentially the same. And of course, also there's the conversation that multi-messenger astronomy doesn't just refer to astronomy using completely different types of astronomical signals like electromagnetic versus cosmic ray versus gravitational waves or neutrinos, but it can also be used to refer to a broad selection of separate wavelength bands of observation, which of course perfectly describes exactly what you were doing. So uh, I suppose that this pretty much is a multi-messenger, um, this is pretty much multi-messenger astronomy research. I, I see the, the operational similarities with the scheduling and everything. And um, yeah, you're right that we do use uh, different wavelengths and uh, so I've been most involved with the Hubble, Gemini, and Juno components, but there's really a worldwide campaign of ground-based observers and even other space telescopes uh, with gamma ray and X-ray telescopes looking at Jupiter in support of Juno, simultaneous observations with Juno. And um, so, yeah, we do really cover the full electromagnetic spectrum and it's, very complementary science because with, with Juno, um, the instrument that I'm most involved with is the microwave radiometer, and that uh, detects radio waves coming out of the atmosphere and tells us about the composition of the atmosphere. That actually varies these uh, upwards and downwards motions because we're sensitive to ammonia in Jupiter's atmosphere with this microwave radiometer and ammonia will condense out. And the process of condensing out is cloud formation. 
So it's really related to what uh, Gemini sees, which is clearings in the clouds. So wherever it's really bright in the five micron images, clouds have been cleared out by downloading motions that have sublimated the cloud ice particles. So we're, we're looking at different ways of seeing motions in Jupiter's atmosphere. So it is, I guess, really multi-messenger type science where, but the, there are so many different messages. I mean, there's different things going on in Jupiter's atmosphere. It's, it's not just about giving context to the specific data coming back from Juno. We're also looking at cycles in Jupiter. And one that recently studied a lot is the equatorial zone. If you look at the press release image, um, in five micron light, it's very dark near the equator. It's just a, a super cloudy region. And recent studies have found that um, it's just about every five to seven years that the equatorial zone will clear out temporarily and become super bright. So we kind of expected that to happen this year, uh, but it hasn't, doesn't look like it's happened yet. And the cyclic nature is something that's just being um, just to be understood. So we may be finding out that these cycles sometimes are late. And we may find out about other cycles in the future um, that we don't even know to look for at this time. So that's one of the reasons why our team put together an archive site that's hosted at Space Telescope Science Institute where both the Hubble and the Gemini data are accessible and we have these detailed maps available. So scientists now or in the future can come back and continue to work with this unique data set that has this 53-day uh, cadence of Jupiter observations over several years. I know you've mentioned a, a few of your results and a few of the observations that you were looking for, but was there, was there anything else sort of interesting that you were looking for? Were there any uh, of your results that surprised you other than what you've already mentioned? Well, the whole thrust of looking at lightning source regions was a little bit unexpected because Juno wasn't designed to look for lightning. There had been some hope that it would be able to detect lightning, but its performance in this area is a, a pretty big surprise. And it turned out to be very good that we had all this Hubble and Gemini imaging available because once we did uh, detect these particularly clusters of lightning flashes where a lot of lightning was coming from a single source region, we were able to look at the cloud structure in those regions with the Hubble and Gemini data that had been collected before really knowing that this would be such an uh, interesting area of research. So there have been some previous studies of lightning, especially with uh, spacecraft that orbit the planet and are able to image the night side. But one of the great things about Juno is it's detecting lightning at radio wavelengths and signals are coming from the atmosphere, passing through the ionosphere and reaching the spacecraft. So uh, because these are, these are not optical light signals, they're radio waves, they can be detected any time of any local time of day. So on the day side of the planet where we're also imaging the clouds and reflected sunlight and thermal emission, we have just a, a wealth of data to really figure out how convection is working in this, in this giant planet atmosphere.
So I was wondering um, how much of Gemini's overall science program is devoted to solar system um, observations like mine compared to other things farther out in space. So it, it varies semester to semester, but uh, usually it comes in around uh, between 10 and 15% of our time is spent on solar system objects as opposed to uh, astrophysical phenomena. Yeah, I have a feeling that Gemini's um, Q mode observing is a great strength in enabling these solar system observations. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be a great tool, especially when regular observations are an important part of the equation. So that's not all for our listeners. On May 27th, we'll be having another conversation with Mike Wong on Live from Noir Lab on the International Gemini Observatory's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash user slash Gemini Observatory, all one word, where we'll be able to take questions live as we talk more about these exciting observations. We'll be live Wednesday, May 27th at 1 p.m. Hawaii time. That's 7 p.m. Eastern time and 4 p.m. Pacific. Thanks again to you, Mike, for joining me today, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. And we'll be able to look at the images while we're talking about them, right? Yes, we will be able to look at those images for those of you who want to see what we're talking about while we're talking about it. Great. Thank you for being on.